Amen. You can turn to Joshua chapter 1. Uh, we're going to continue in Joshua today. Uh, we're rounding out chapter 1. Last week we looked at Joshua 1, 1 through 9. Today we're looking at Joshua chapter 1, uh, 10 through 18. And um, in, in verses 1 through 9 last week, what we looked at is, is God has just commissioned Joshua to continue the work that he was doing through Moses and leading his people into the land of promise. Uh, that goes all the way back to God's promise to Abraham, right? To give him uh, offspring more numerous than he could count, a blessing and a land to possess. Um, and this morning, uh, as we continue into this, Joshua's primary role will be to lead the people of Israel into the land that God has promised and to give them their inheritance. In verses 10 through 18, uh, what we're going to see is, is Joshua's immediate obedience to kick that into gear. But then we're also going to look at um, just some of the overarching um, theme and goal of the book of Joshua. Um, and just, uh, I guess, on the front end, uh, if you want to kind of get your fingers ready, we'll, we'll be in Deuteronomy a little bit and Leviticus and Genesis to kind of pull this all together. Because one of the questions that we're going to be asking as we walk through this is, is why is God, why is this part of God's plan? Why is God ushering the people of Israel into this land? Uh, and, and, and what is, what does he have in store for it? What can we learn about God? What can we apply to that through every generation? Not just, uh, this, specific period of time where the people are going into the land of promise. So we're going to pick up in Joshua chapter 1, starting in verse 10. It says, And Joshua commanded the officers of the people, Pass through the midst of the camp and command the people, Prepare your provisions, for within three days you are to pass over this Jordan to go in to take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. And to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, Joshua said, Remember the word that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, The Lord your God is providing you a place of rest and will give you this land. Your wives, your little ones, and your livestock shall remain in the land that Moses gave you beyond the Jordan. But all the men of valor among you shall pass over armed before your brothers and shall help them. Until the Lord gives rest to your brothers as he has to you, and they also take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving them. Then you shall return to the land of your possession and shall possess it, the land that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you beyond the Jordan toward the sunrise. And they answered Joshua, All that you have commanded us we will do, and wherever you send us we will go. Just as we obeyed Moses in all things, so we will obey you. Only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. Whoever rebels against your commandment and disobeys your words, whatever you command him shall be put to death. Only be strong and courageous. As we, as we pick up into verses 10 and 11, uh, we could just gloss over this, but take in mind... Uh, he's just been told three times, be strong and courageous, be strong and courageous, be strong and courageous. The Lord is going to, through you, give the inheritance to the people of Israel. And the very first thing, the very next thing that we see is Joshua's immediate passing through the camp and saying, okay, we're going in. Uh, what's interesting about that, in a sense, is 40 years before this, you remember, 40 years, rewind, Joshua and Caleb had told the people, stood in front of the people and said, God is giving us the land, we should go in and take it. Right? And all of the people said, nah. 
And now, 40 years later, Joshua has the same opportunity. And, and, and from a human standpoint, we might go, Joshua might calculate and go, I've tried this before. Didn't go well. But instead, what we see is Joshua immediately goes through and tells the people, get ready, within three days, we're heading over. Um, and it's interesting, right, as, as far as personal conviction leading to commanding the people, the sons and daughters and the grandchildren of a disobedient people who before had said, we won't go. Joshua's obedience to the Lord, Joshua's desire to follow the word of the Lord has not wavered, even though he spent 40 years in the wilderness because of an inability or an unwillingness to follow the Lord previously. Now he says there's an imminence to this, whereas before in in Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Numbers, there's a building up to the people coming to the edge of the land, to the place where the the 12 spies go in, they bring back a report, and then the people are not allowed to go in. So we've been waiting in the wilderness, 40 years, waiting for this moment, and now, within three days, he says, get ready, we're going in. That's, that's a big shift, right? 40 years of waiting. Hey, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm almost to 40 years old. I haven't been waiting my whole life for anything. Um, I don't think. I, I waited periods of, of time for a thing, but, but to wait 40 years for, for, for something, that's, that's a long time. And then can you imagine if you had been waiting 40 years? So if I had been waiting from the day of my birth until now for this one thing, and then somebody says, okay, three days from now, or within three days, we're going in. There might be a party who goes, I don't know, a lifetime, three days, that seems a little bit too good to be true. But the people, you see their immediate response is, is, is you drop down as they say, whatever the Lord tells you, we will do. Which is completely different than their response 40 years earlier. 40 years earlier it was like, no, I don't think God has really said this. I don't think God is really with us. I don't think we really ought to go in here. And now, 40 years later, it's a completely different response, even from these two and a half tribes that are, are, are getting ready to go in. Now it is, Joshua, whatever you tell us, whatever the Lord commands, we will do it. What it like, can you just imagine, like, if you're Joshua, that has to feel pretty decent, right? To go from no to whatever you say. I, have you ever tried to lead people that don't want to be led to do something like group project in school? And you're like, hey, well, this is what we ought to do. And everybody just sandbags and say, we're not doing that. That's a horrible idea. And then have you worked with a group project where everybody says, okay, whatever, what's the goal? What are we working towards? Which one of those groups do you like to work in? Anyway, if you said the first group, you're a liar. That's okay. But the question is, twice in here he says, within three days you're to pass over this Jordan, verse 11, to go and to take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. This heavy emphasis on possessing the land. And it raises a question why are they to possess the land? And in doing so, why are they supposed to drive out the people who are there? Because that's really what the entire book of Joshua is about. The people of Israel possessing the land and driving out the people that are there. And if we just stop for a moment, we would probably be honest to say there's, there's part of that that makes us, or hopefully makes us, kind of uncomfortable. How, I mean, how many of you are just comfortable with like, let's just drive people away from where they live push them into refugee camps. That gives us kind of an uncomfortable feeling in the 21st century, doesn't it? It like kicks against all of our senses of justice. And so we come to this and we say, why is a holy and just God commanding his people to go in to possess the land and to drive people out from it? Now we get a partial answer in verses 12 through 15, his plan for the people of Israel. Right In 12 through 15, he's talking to the two and a half tribes, but he says, remember, and there's... 
I'll pause really quick. He's speaking to two and a half tribes because the root, uh, the tribes of Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh, they all, outside of the land of Jordan, they saw that this land was good for cattle, and they said, hey, Moses, when Moses was still alive, we really don't want to go into the land. We would really like to stay here. Can we just, can we not have our inheritance there? Can we please stay here? And remember, God's word to Moses was, that's fine, but you still have to go in and help the other Nine and a half tribes, is my math right? Other nine and a half tribes go in and have their possession. Then you can come back and possess yours. But you notice what he says. He says in verse 13, Remember the word that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, The Lord your God is giving you, providing you a place of rest. And you are going to go in, verse 14, All of your men of valor along with you are going to go over with your brothers and help them, verse 15, until the Lord gives them rest. And so for the people of Israel, the idea is God is giving them a place to possess, to rest. It is not the end of their walk in covenant faithfulness with the Lord, but it's a matter of being established to a place where they are to walk in covenant relationship with the Lord. So much so that if you go back to Deuteronomy chapter 28, you don't have to go there now. You could jot this down, go back and look at it. Deuteronomy chapter 28, when God is establishing his covenant with the people of Israel, the first 10 verses of Deuteronomy 28 are all of the blessings that they can expect if they do what God tells them to do, if they walk with him and keep his commands, if they worship him and keep him only in their worship, if they don't stray to worshiping other gods and turning to idolatry, if they preserve their worship to the Lord and worship him rightly, walking rightly with one another, all of the blessings that they can expect. And then the rest of Deuteronomy chapter 28 is all of what they can expect if they depart from a right worship of the Lord. If they go after other gods, if they leave their worship of the Lord and go after other gods, if they stop following the Lord's command, if they do only what is right in their own sight, what they can expect, and it's a laundry list, it's even it's it's way longer than all of the blessings. The curses like they seem like they go on and on and on. To the point where he says, if they don't do this, they will be evicted from the land that they are being given to possess. And so their their call to go into the land is a place of rest, but what it looks like is a lifetime generations of walking with the Lord in right worship. So rest doesn't mean, hey, journey's over, now we can do whatever we did. We followed the Lord for 40 years, whew, glad we checked that off the list, and now we get the land, we do whatever we want. Instead, it is an expectation that they will walk with the Lord. So we go, okay, so the people of Israel are inheriting rest, but why, like, why do they deserve it? So if, you, if you're tracking with me, uh, turn to Deuteronomy chapter 7 really quick. We're going to look at Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 through 11, and then in just a minute we're going to go back and pick up the first five verses of Deuteronomy 7. So we're kind of jumping forward, and then we're going to come back and look at the first stipulation of Deuteronomy 7, and hopefully it makes sense why we're going forward in order to go backwards. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 through 11. In talking about the people and their relationship with the Lord, he says, For you are a people holy or set apart to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. 
So again, God has established a special relationship with Abraham's family, with the people of Israel, out of all of the people on the face of the earth. And then notice in verse 7, though, he says, It wasn't because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, because you were the fewest of all peoples. But it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. In other words, he set you apart. He set his eye on you. He's by, but just purely by grace and by his choosing, he has chosen you out of all people, intending to keep his faithful, steadfast love with you from generation to generation to a thousand generations. That's a long time. And he says, and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with the one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. Therefore, you shall be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. Built into this gracious relationship is also this fact that he says he's a just God. He does what is right towards people's interactions with him. Therefore, the people ought to walk carefully with him. But notice he says there's not anything special about the people of Israel. There's nothing special about the people of Israel ethnically. Like biologically, there's nothing that sets them apart as, oh wow, you, you, you're the people that I should pick. You're taller than everybody else. You're faster than everybody else. You have more money than everybody else. In fact, he says the complete opposite. You're like among all of the peoples of the earth, you have the least to offer. And it's simply by the grace of God that he has chosen you to the people of Israel. Therefore, walk with him in a right obedience, right response. He's chosen you for no other reason other than he has decided to show the the, the fountains of overwhelming grace towards you. That's, that sounds pretty like that sounds like the lottery, doesn't it? Like, you did nothing. Just imagine this. You're, you're, you grew up in the, the people of Israel. And God says, you didn't do anything to deserve this. It's because I just decided to give it to you. Out of the overflows of my goodness and mercy, you get all of this. But then you go up to verses 1 through 5, and, and you see the, the opposite of, of like, what is the, the end? And, and we would say it's of the specific people, the Canaanites, but it's really, if, if you're not, like, if, if God hasn't set his special eye of love and grace upon you, what is the alternative? And in verses 1 through 5, he says, When the Lord your God brings you into the land, and again, we're talking about the land, that you are entering to take possession of it. There's that key word again, possession of it. And... The Lord clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And then he has just said, you're the weakest and the fewest of all nations. Seven nations more numerous and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, and this is where we, get, we ought to hopefully get a little uncomfortable, then you must devote them to complete destruction. How, does that sound comfortable for us to wrestle through? It says, you shall make no covenant, no treaties with them. Show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. And this is why, verse 4, key verse. Because, or for, they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you. And he would destroy you quickly. But thus you shall deal with them, and you shall break down their altars, and dash in pieces their pillars, and chop down their ashram, and burn their carved images with fire. Verse 5, how you deal. He says, tearing down all of the articles of worship. 
So it's, it's all hinging on the, the why, he says, is because of, it's, an, it's a matter of worship. Now, does that still make us feel comfortable? Maybe not so much. If you go to Deuteronomy chapter 20, he outlines this even a little bit more. Right? He says, so the, 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 the danger is the hearts of the people that are, 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 have been drawn into a right relationship with the Lord, into a covenant relationship with the Lord, the danger is as they go in that their hearts will be drawn away from the Lord, away from covenant relationship, and into the same practices that they were called out of at the very beginning. Practices that led them to death rather than to life. In Deuteronomy chapter 20, verses 10 through 18, he gives rules for warfare. How they ought to uh, 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 go into battle. If you want to say rules of engagement. It says, when you draw near to a city, this is Deuteronomy chapter 20, starting in verse 10. When you draw near to a city to fight against it, offer terms of peace to it. And if it responds to you peaceably and it opens to you, then all the people who are found in it shall do forced labor for you and shall serve you. But if it makes no peace with you but makes war against you, then you shall besiege it. And when the Lord your God gives it into your hand, you shall put all its males to the sword. But the women and the little ones, the livestock and everything else in the city, all its spoil, you shall take as plunder for yourselves. And you shall enjoy the spoil of your enemies, which the Lord your God has given you. Thus you shall do to all the cities that are very far from you, which are not cities of the nations here. So he's talking about lands outside of the land of promise. And then, verse 16, there's a transition. What about when we go into the land that we are to possess? It says, but in the cities of these peoples that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes. Stop there. Are we comfortable? Not really, right? This is still like, oh, kind of grating. Like, what do we, how do we reconcile this? He says, but you shall devote them to complete destruction, the Hittites and the Amorites, the Canaanites and the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded. And again, that might give us a little bit of pause. As the Lord your God has commanded. And then again, verse 18, the why, that they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods, and so you sin against the Lord your God. What is God's primary concern with the people of Israel as they go into the land? Their worship. Right? Like the, the entire Old Testament law, the first five books of, of the law are all concerned with this is how you, as, as a people set apart in the Old Covenant, this is how this people is to respond to this holy God who's created all things. And his primary concern as they go into the land is what will happen to your worship? Now we're still kind of dancing around the subject of like, this, is, this is kind of a, a difficult idea of going in and to possess a land and, and, and waging war with another people. It, and again, we'll take one more. We're, we're, we're doing a little bit of Bible, Bible drill here for a minute. Leviticus chapter 18. Leviticus chapter 18. If we start in verses 1 through 5. It says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. Verse 3, a prohibition. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt, where you lived, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan, to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes, which is worship. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. And he dropped down in Leviticus 18 to, chapter, to verses 24 through 30. 
And he says, do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things. He just talked about incest. He talked about bestiality. He talked about uh, offering children as sacrifice. He's talking about these abominable practices of worship that they are not to duplicate for themselves. He says, don't do these things making yourselves unclean by them. Don't taint your worship. For by all of these, the nations I am driving out before you have become unclean. And the land became unclean so that I punished its iniquity and the land vomited out its inhabitants. But you shall keep my statutes and my rules and do none of these abominations, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For the people of the land who were before you did all of these abominations so that the land became unclean. Lest the land, notice this, lest the land vomit you out when you make it unclean as it vomited out the nation that was before you. For everyone who does any of these abominations, the person who do them shall be cut off from among their people. So keep my charge never to practice any of these abominable customs that were practiced before you, and never to make yourselves unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. Now what's interesting about this is we start to, 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 to kind of dial this in as we look at it from, a, 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 from Deuteronomy, Leviticus, and now into Joshua. And I just ask a simple question. Is there a different rule for the people of Canaan and the people of Israel? Is there a different standard for the people of Israel than there is for the people of Canaan? Or is God speaking to them consistently? If you do this, this is what will happen. Right? For the Israelites, if you do this, the land will vomit you out. If you do this... You will be purged away. If you do this, you likewise will be driven out. Now, it still might make us uncomfortable, but what we are starting to see in this is that God is just. In other words, God practices justice. In in other words, he is perfectly just. When God judges, he judges rightly. He sees all of the facts. He sees all of the details. He sees all of the hearts, all of the motives, all of the everything that is involved in the people that he calls to account. And what's uncomfortable, in a sense, about what happens in the Old Testament is that it is also a mirror of the fact that God will ultimately, or to God, all of us will ultimately give an account, and he sees it all. And he will judge all of us rightly. Does that make us comfortable? he's, He's the holy God who created everything out of nothing. Right? Which is why over and over again he tells the people when he's, he's giving these commands, he says, I am the Lord your God. I, like, I am the sovereign one over you. I am the one who is in control of all things. I'm the one who, who brought you out of nothing. In fact, I'm the one who initially created everything out of nothing. And yet at the same time that God is just, we also see another principle throughout Scripture, which is that God is also incredibly patient. In Genesis chapter 15, verses 13 through 16, this is all the way back when he makes the covenant with Abraham. Genesis 15, 13 through 16, he says, The Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. So he, he, Abraham was told, 400 years of captivity for the people of Israel in Egypt. And then he says, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, Egypt, and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, you shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. What was, I don't I'm I'm, I'm kind of okay with history most of the time, except for when it comes to the math part of it. 
What was happening in America 400 years ago? 1623. Now we're like, uh, Columbus had sailed the ocean blue, right? That was 1492. Jamestown settlement. So I, I mean, like, just, just getting off the ground, right? Uh, that's a lot, 400 years. How much, how much history has been made in 400 years? What, I, I, what has happened in America over the last 400 years? You think about that again. Like, just trace that back to, like, you, could, you could say that like, what, what has happened in 400 years of Virginia state history? That's a, there's a lot of history in Virginia, right? right? What's, what's happened in 400 years of Florida history? What's happened in 400 years of world history? How has the world changed in 400 years? That's a long time. And all the way back, 400 years previously, God promised, I'm going to deal with his people, but not yet. Because he's patient. 400 years, he says, they haven't, like, they haven't, they haven't stored up, or they haven't done enough yet for God to drive them out. How much... Let me just ask this question. If, if, if people were, were bent on doing everything other than what was pleasing to the Lord, how much wrong could they do in 400 years? If as a nation, if we were just hell-bent on doing everything contrary to what God would have us to do as a nation for 400 years, what would it look like 400 years from now? Is that a, is that a, a nation that we would feel like, hey, I want my children and grandchildren, like this is looking like an optimistic, we're going to turn the corner. What I'm saying is, God knowing 400 years previously, these people are not going, like God being all-knowing, all-wise, all-powerful, knowing, they're going to continue to run away from the purpose that every person on this planet was created for for 400 years. How incredibly patient is he with generations of people? How patient is he with you and I? You don't have to raise your hand, but how many of you would say that God has been patient with you? How often have we not gotten exactly what our actions should have merited or deserved right in the moment? How many times have we, that, has that been withheld from us? Now, if we bring this back, if God is holy, and in him there is no blemish, and every sin is a capital offense before him, how much patience does he demonstrate towards us? One of the questions that the, the Scripture raises often, or one of the questions that we wrestle with is, is how can... How can a loving God allow bad things to happen to us? And yet the other, the, the, the tail end of that question is, is if, God is if God is perfectly holy, he's perfectly just, he's perfectly good in every way, completely opposite of how we are, how can a loving God give us anything that is good? If our actions merit separation from a holy God, how how in the world is it right or fair that he gives us good things? 
In 2 Peter, it's not on the screen for you. At the end of 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter's writing a letter to a church that's enduring all kinds of persecution in there, and they're looking forward, like, uh, wondering how much longer before God kind of brings all things right, how much longer before the suffering ends, how much longer are they going to be dealing with the difficulties of, of life in a broken world. And Peter issues this encouragement in Second Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 8. Right before this, he said that, that God is ultimately going to bring a right judgment onto the entire earth. But he says, But don't overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord isn't slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he's patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, And then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. What does Peter attribute God's patience towards? Not that he's unjust, but that he's loving and he's earnestly desiring that people come to a place of turning towards him in right faith. What will be fascinating next week as we look at Joshua chapter 2 is, is right after we've just talked about how the people are going in, there will be people that we, we encounter in the book of Joshua who say, hey, we've heard about the Lord and what he's doing. We've heard about what he's promised. And we want to stop worshiping here and we want to come worship with you. Because it's not about who they were born or, or, or what ethnicity they are. It is about their heart to worship and being called to a right worship. So even at the point where it is now, if you want to say the scales and God is saying now is the time where the patience has run out, there are still people who find themselves grafted into the people of Israel. One of those people being Rahab who ends up being in the line of David, who ends up being in the line of Jesus. One who, based off of all of what the law commands, ought not to have been spared and yet because of her turning her repentance and faith is brought near. So if we, if we kind of wrap this together, there's just some, some, some overarching themes that are throughout Scripture that I think are important for us. First one again, and I've said it a couple times, but God is a right and good judge. And as creator, he has the right to judgment. If, if he has created all these things, like if you just imagine, like we tell our kids this all the time when they're building Legos or whatever else it is, I, because, you know, kids, one kid builds a tower and then another one runs in and wants to crash the tower. And what do we tell them? We say, if he wants to knock the tower down, he can't. Why? He's the one who built it. It's his, it's his creation. If he wants to, to destroy it, like that's his choice. He's the one who created it. You don't get to run in and do it. Right? So God is the one who has all right, all authority, all sovereignty, all everything over all of creation. But he does it rightly. In other words, like when he does, when he judges, he does it with perfect judgment, which it's really hard for us to see with our eyes because we judge with a slant of sin in impacting everything that we see. God has none of that. Second thing, though, is that sin, what this points out to us in Joshua and throughout all of Scripture, is sin is far more serious than we give it credit for. 
I don't know that we truly understand the gravity of our sin before a holy God. I don't know that we fully grasp how offensive, how treasonous, how rebellious, how grievous our sin is before the God who created us. When I ask the question, I, well, how serious is sin? We can see one of the ways that we can know how serious sin is is by the solution that God provides to rid it from us. Sin is so serious and so grievous that only God could remove it, and only God could remove it by sending his eternal son to die in our place. Our sin merited the death of the Holy Son of God to pay for it. Our sin deserves all of the like all of the consequences that we see throughout all of Scripture is just it's a picture of the brokenness of the world and what that costs. And yet I think we are so comfortable with the God of grace and love that we we, we, we can't imagine the gravity of our sin, and the judgment that that deserves. And how those two things can fit together. And the only way that it fits together is that a perfectly just God perfectly judged sin by laying all of the consequences of it on his son so that you and I could live in freedom. And within that, not, not, not seeing how grievous sin is. If, if we truly understand how bad sin is, then we would also understand how good the good news of the gospel is. That you and I do not have to spend an eternity separated from a holy God in a place of eternal torment that is what sin deserves. And instead, we get to experience all of the life and blessing and absence of evil forever because of his simple act of grace towards us. Not because of how strong we were, not because of all the things we brought to the table, but because he chose to love us and include us into his promise. And then the question is, well, who is this promise and who is this rest for? It is for everyone, every man, woman, and child in every place of the world who turns away from wrong worship and turns towards Jesus in faith. And then we ask the question, how patient is he? How many of you ever just wish that all the evil in the world would just be eliminated right now? And what Second Peter is reminding us is the reason that God doesn't just immediately go end of evil for all of time is because he still desires for people to turn from death to life. And he still desires for you and I for, to be ambassadors of that good news everywhere we go. Because he is patient and loving and just. We, have, we are people who have escaped the wages of sin and received the eternal gift of life in Jesus. So if we go back to Second Peter really quick, just to close... Peter speaks this, what kind of people ought we to be if this is what Jesus is doing? If, If this is what God's patience is doing, it's designed to draw people to repentance. And if all things are going to come to an end, if he's going to ultimately judge all things, all things are going to be brought before him. 
And all things will certainly be brought before him. Not a single thing, not a single person on this planet will escape that day where we stand before a holy God and give account for ourselves. He says, since all of these things are thus to be dissolved, he's talking about the earth and all of its trappings, and if everything is to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. He says, what, what, what type of people ought we to be as he is patient? People who are living lives of holiness, given over, set apart to him, responding to his grace, living in holiness and godliness, making much of his name. Just as the people of Israel were to radiate the name and the goodness of who God is to the nations. Like, right? Nations were to be grafted in by faith, seeing God interact with people. But instead, what we see throughout Scripture is the people of Israel not necessarily living up to that high and lofty goal of of living and radiating who God is around them, but rather adopting and acclimating and piling on all of the ways the world acted around them. And instead of making the goodness of who God is known, they instead said, nah, this way is better. And what does Peter say? What kind of people ought you to be? Are we to be people who quickly forget God's promises Or are we to be people who earnestly wait, trusting that God is just, God is good, God is loving, God has provided a way of salvation, and God is going to bring all things to a head, and we will all give an account to him. Now, if we truly grasp the depths of our sin and what it costs, and we recognize that people around us who do not know Jesus, that is the reality that they face, I hope that our response is not just a, Shrug of the shoulders, well, that's just the way, that's the way theology works. Our response ought to be one that is rushing to people while we have time, telling them there is good news for those who hope in the Lord. So this week, in the coming days, I would pray that God would place people on your hearts and your minds, that you would recognize, I have the opportunity. These people, God has placed them in my life, that I might make much of the good news of who Jesus is.